Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale, seaburysecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Ben Baldanza here, and welcome to this week's Airlines Confidential. Lots of nice feedback from our show with Andrew Nacella that aired last week, and we'll bring you another good conversation with industry veteran Lance Lipkus in a few minutes. Chris, you're on the road and in the air this week, right? Yes, indeed. I've been on planes, roads, and ships. Uh, this was a big week at Carnival. It's our 50th birthday, so we've got lots of festivities around that. And then we restarted operations in Jacksonville and Mobile this past week. So that was fun. I had dinner last week with the mayor of Mobile, Alabama, and had a fascinating conversation about their plans to move the airport. Mobile Regional Airport is not the most convenient, about 30 to 40 minutes from the main part of the city. They're actually moving the passenger services to an airfield three miles from downtown adjacent to the Airbus facility. Uh, I'd love to have Mayor Stimson on a future show to talk about how you move an airport into a population center. So we're going to work on that. But uh, in the meantime, we've got some news. Well, Chris, I think our guests would love to hear that discussion. You know all too well that while some people like to be next to an airport, those who work at the airport or maybe commute, most people want the airport sort of easy to get to, but pretty far away. We're really looking forward to that. But I bet with Airbus manufacturing planes right there, that's going to be a real boon to them. In the meantime, let's cover off a few news items. Of course, Ben, any discussion, of course, starts with Ukraine. I don't even know where or what kind of a question to ask you. I think we're all so numb about this and sad and angry, and probably there's growing fear involved as well. So I guess I'm just asking what you're thinking about, about all this. Well, obviously, I'm thinking what a lot of people are is, how is this going to end? And is it going to end? How might it escalate and such? I've also been thinking a lot about how it's affecting the industry we all love here, though, in the airlines. And it's interesting to see that United Airlines has had to suspend their service from Newark to India because they're not overflying Russia. And Finnair talked about having to cancel almost all of their services to Asia. Because how do you get from Helsinki to Asia and avoid Russia, right? And so the overfly issues, the fact that fuel prices are ramping up right now, in part just because of uncertainty, but in part because of a real concern that Russian oil may get cut off. And then you have even longer term issues. The fact that Russia is a big producer of titanium, and the world uses titanium and fuselages and engines and things like that. So what does that mean for the production of new airplanes? I'm not suggesting that all these things about the airline industry are more important than the amazing invasion of a sovereign nation that's happening and the terrible thing that's things that are happening to the people in Ukraine. But it just shows how connected the world is in a sense that a country like Russia makes this invasion on its neighbor, and the whole world is impacted in so many different ways. And for our industry, it's not insignificant how it's impacted. Yeah, it's been um, interesting and I think also gratifying to see so many, not just U.S. companies, but global companies stepping up to cease operations or, doing, or do business with Russia or Russian companies. So whether it be Boeing and Airbus, not delivering support to those aircraft that might be operating uh, by Russian carriers, Sabre, and then Travelport and Amadeus have all ceased uh, carrying Russian uh, airlines on their systems. Obviously, the, the flight issues and, and any service under Russia are a given with regard to them being ceased. So like you said, the impact just keeps rolling and... Um, it's going to continue to, I think, and I think we just have to watch this as it relates to you know, fuel prices for the airline business 
and for transportation in general. But um, it, it is just a an amazingly sad situation. I know at Carnival, we have about 400 Ukrainians who are our employees on our ships and having conversations with them and hearing their stories about their family members and trying to stay in touch with their family members back home. And we have others who are supposed to join our ships that obviously can't get out. So it's a very personal thing for us too, as it relates to our employees. I'm sure, you know, I teach my class at George Mason University and last week's class, we were talking about frequent fire programs and the economics of frequent fire programs and such. But before we even started, it just didn't seem right to me to just jump into that. And so I just asked, George Mason has lots of international students. Are any of you from Ukraine or do you have family or friends in Ukraine or just know people from Ukraine? And several people raised their hands. And so we just talked about sort of what was going on for five or 10 minutes. And that just seemed the right thing to do before just diving into sort of the topic at the time. Because how do you ignore the human tragedies going on? Exactly. So, I mean, we've got to just keep thinking good thoughts and and hoping for a peaceful resolution quickly. But um, I think we'll be talking about this for a while. Ben, switching gears, it seems like the world has gone silent on the frontier spirit merger that might be good for that merger right now. But meanwhile, there's a little M&A activity north of us in Canada. Canada's WestJet announced that it was acquiring Sunwing Airlines, which is a low-cost leisure airline. And the transaction also includes the Sunwing's Vacations Bookings website. So sometimes in this time of chaos, there brings both uncertainty but also opportunity. So which one is this? Chris, I think this one is opportunity for WestJet. I'm guessing the Sunwings Vacation Bookings website is one of the better assets that WestJet got in this. They obviously know, like most airlines, that leisure traffic is what is flying right now. There is still uncertainty as to how much business traffic is going to return. And so building competency and building resource in the leisure space is important for airlines. So it seems like this was a really good opportunity for WestJet to sort of strengthen themselves in that place, maybe get better in selling vacation products. WestJet did that before, but probably with the Sunwings booking site, they can do it a little better. It just strengthens them in a space that's becoming more and more important for all airlines. I thought it was a good deal for WestJet. Yeah, I do too. And you know, Canadians love travel packages. So um, that's something that you know American consumers still don't often think about when they're purchasing travel. Um, but Canadians, Europeans, other, other geographies love travel packages. And um, so I think it taps into an opportunity for them. So listeners, I've got to wonder if our friends at Seabury were anywhere near that WestJet Sunwing deal. Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. And Airlines Confidential wants to thank TA Connections, which provides an intelligent, integrated, and flexible suite of applications that allow airlines to efficiently book and manage crew travel and lodging. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Ben, the last news item, uh, American Airlines rolled out a series of changes. They are calling them enhancements to their Advantage program. Is there anything in there you found of interest or that you think will be matched by major competitors? I thought this was a fascinating announcement by American Airlines, actually, Chris. They talked about it being a real simplification of the program. My guess is that Users of Advantage or those vested in Advantage who have really played Advantage to their strengths are going to be disappointed at some of the things taken away. Others will probably be excited about 
certain aspects of it. Let's just talk about what they did. Basically, they changed the whole mode of of what matters to what they now call loyalty points. And loyalty points are earned by flying, but also by using your credit card. And as a result of that, you could get to the highest levels in Americans' frequent fire program without ever even stepping foot on the airplane if you just charged a lot on your credit card. The other thing is they award loyalty based on how much you spend. And the higher you are in the program, the more that multiplier is. Basically, the more you invest in American to earn loyalty points, the easier they make it to get even more loyalty points and move up. They've also made it consistent in terms of how you earn when you're flying partner airlines And that's probably a good thing. But in the process, again, for some people who worked hard with American by flying them a lot to earn status, they're probably not all that excited. They've also taken away companion passes, and that is going to be probably something that's really missed by a number of people. And they're going to see that as a big takeaway. So the early reviews that I've read online about this were largely negative because there were lots of customers saying, I don't get this anymore. I don't like this change. I don't like what they've taken away from me. My guess is that over time, the program is simpler. More people will understand it it's possible that more people will enroll over time. So I'm not saying that it it's not a good thing that American did, but it's certainly not coming out as super positive for everyone. Yeah, I think that's a good summation. Look, anytime you try to tinker with loyalty, you're going to alienate a group of people because, like you said, they've either figured out how to work the system. I don't want to... I don't want that to sound like it's going to sound, but they know how to earn extra points and and move quickly through the scale to achieve status. And they feel like they, they deserve to stay there. So I get that. I think there's a benefit to making it simpler. I mean, these things have become kind of like ACT or SAT word problems. You, you need a, a calculator and a dictionary to explain some of the terminology and how you get there and a roadmap to achieving status. So it is complicated. It always has been complicated. So I give them credit for the simplicity of this. And, you know, I know we've heard from some listeners too who feel like they've worked really hard to maintain status by flying. And like you said, they're going to be bumped by somebody who earns it via credit card. Well, airlines make money off credit card partnerships and, you know, they probably don't want you using your Delta American Express card to charge your American Airlines travel so you can kind of double dip into two programs. They're trying to drive people to the co-branded American Airlines card. So they're going to take some flack. These things always do. Um, I think as the simplicity of the changes take shape. They might have more fans than they did before, um, but we'll have to see. But ultimately, they're trying to give people status and keep them loyal, uh, but to stick with American in different kinds of ways. So we'll see if it works. I I think that's all right, Chris. And I've said before on the show that I think loyalty programs sort of need a recalibration in a post-pandemic world. When there aren't as many business travelers traveling, when the rate of earning points or miles in a program changes, then almost by definition, the price of the awards have to also change. And it's been almost too soon since the pandemic, even though it seems like we've been in the pandemic forever. It's been almost too soon to make a major structural change to the programs yet, But what American has done here may be part of that, too. They're thinking, hey, if our customer base going forward is not 
as frequent a traveler, but we still want them really engaged with the company and involved with the company, this program does a pretty good job of that. So this might be the first of what we might see as several reiterations of what loyalty means in a post-pandemic world. Yep. So I'm sure we'll be hearing from listeners uh, as they're digesting this and uh, also reacting to our discussion just now, but um, we'll have to watch the other big airlines and see how they react. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential and a talk with Lance Lipkiss. Promotional support for Airlines Confidential comes from thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation with vintage timetables, route maps, brochures, historic flights, terminals, airplane cabins, virtual tours of airline maintenance and training facilities, models, safety cards, and menus, plus special flights and events. The Archive.net is now boarding. We're very happy to welcome Lance Lipkiss to the show. Lance and I have been friends for a while, and he's a wealth of knowledge about all things airlines. So welcome, Lance, and why don't you start out by telling all of our listeners about your background in aviation and what you're doing now? Okay, thanks, Ben. Glad to uh, glad to join here. Uh, kind of excited about this. Uh, you know, very rarely do I get a chance to talk about aviation, which is my passion. So I started my aviation career uh, after I left uh, National Cash Register, which is my first job out of Columbia University. And actually got a job at American Airlines as they had an advertisement in a newspaper. So I started with American in Manhattan, and then uh, American decided they were going to move to Dallas. I did not want to go to Dallas. So I left American on a Friday, and a Monday later, I joined Pan American World Airways. The airline was very interesting. A lot of different airplanes, as you know, a global airline. And in many cases, the decades before, Pan Am actually built airports, runways, the technology. Uh, and people don't remember that, that this was a, um, an airline that actually developed the airline industry around the world. And they were the first. My role at Pan Am was really optimizing the airport operations. And that, that means that's about the people uh, process, right? Not about flight attendants, not about pilots, but basically all the people at the airports. Today, I'm with a private equity company. And it's really interesting that most of the key people, the, the CEO, um, some of the partners, all came from Sendent. And they decided that they were not going to be um, Sendent kind of business related because Sendent was a huge $22 billion conglomerate with travel because it owned uh, orbits through acquisition, cheap tickets, e-bookers. I mean, the list just went on and on. They would acquisition a travel-related company every three months. And at Sendin, a lot of these people ended up in private equity. So they invited me after I left CWT to help them, not in aviation, but in all kinds of companies that need some form of transformation. And that's what we're working on right now. Seattle was Travelport, which later became the Galileo uh, background, which is, uh, you know, the competition between Sabre and Amadeus. So they used that name and then all the acquisitions of eBookers, which was a European OTB, an online booking team. And they had Octopus and then they had Hotel Club, Trippy Words, Cheap Tickets, and all those other companies all uh, accumulated to 23 acquisitions in less than two years, and that became Travelport. And Orbitz was the last one that they bought, and Orbitz was only bought because they had the best booking tool that existed at that time. And that was a $70 million investment that was two years late. So um, I was at both of these, Carlson Wagonlet um, and uh, uh, American Express, GBT. They are competitors, very large companies. You know, the IBMs, the Facebooks, the Googles, you know, the, these are their clients. So Lance, let's specifically talk about something you just uh, mentioned with regard to CWT and American Express Global Travel and, and, and the like. Where do these large business travel agencies travel uh, service providers, where do they go in this new world post-COVID, post the slowdown in business travel, post the desire by suppliers to sell more directly to their customers? What's the future for those companies and how do they succeed? So this is a, this is a great question, right? So what the bigger companies do, they offer a different type of model. It's, it's, it's the travel of care. Like I know, I know where you are, 
I know what hotels you're in. I know your surroundings. I know whether there's other people there. And you can have that one-on-one relationship with a small team, right? So if you're in company X and you've got five people, you probably know all five of them. So you build those relationships rather than having one big call center, you know, globally. And it's, you know, you just don't know who you're talking to. So I think it's the, it's the care of duty of, of having these close relationships. And if there is an event in a country, we know it's happening because we have boots on the ground. It's all about the, uh, the safety and the, the care of the traveler. I think that's the big difference. Well, Lance, let's go back to the airport environment now. And in the U.S. especially, there are airlines that outsource all their airports. There are some that outsource below wing and insource above wing, right? And there are some airlines that do it all themselves, and it may be different by airport. In your experience, do airports with outsourced labor versus insource labor work differently? Or what are the challenges of using outsourced labor to run an efficient airport? Okay. So you probably didn't know that I worked for Dynair, which was the country's largest uh, outsourcer below and above the wing. This is a very, it's it's a very fascinating question, Ben, because the first thing is that, are you a hub or are you not a hub? Are you a small hub? Are you a large, small, small company? So that, and let me start with the small. If, if you're flying into a destination where you only have three flights a day, you're probably going to outsource above and below the wing. I mean, you just, you just, number one, you couldn't afford the ground equipment and the capital expense to buy all that equipment. You need a GPU, you need a tow bar, you need carts, you need a tractor, you need all this equipment. And your equipment would stay idle for most of the time. So there's a there's a kind of a rough rule that says that unless you're a big operation and somewhere what we would call a higher mid-range that could have maybe 15 to 20 flights, then you have to look at the economics below the wing. And the same with above the wing. If you have smaller, smaller operations like uh, some of the tiny airlines, they'll probably outsource above the wing as well. But if you're going to outsource it, they get to use those people possibly on a different day when you don't have this, it'll change their uniform. So you're not getting that dedicated loyalty. All big hubs have above the wing their own people. However, some are starting to outsource parts of their their business. So when you look at it below the wing, let's talk about what's below the wing. Catering. Everyone outsources catering with except uh, I think American kind of started shedding their uh, uh, chef. What are they called? What was their same? Uh, Sky Chefs. Sky Chef. Yeah, I couldn't remember. It's so so long ago. So nobody pretty much does their own catering anymore. When you look at security, that's outsourced. You know, cargo hubs probably uh, are in-house, but most of them are outsourced depending depending on your, your bond. Your cleaners. Very few companies do their own cleaning anymore. You know, aircraft cleaning, their lavatory service, their water service, those things are all outsourced, even in the hubs. So it's uh, to come back to you directly to your question. It's about economics and the uh, having your own people above the wing is emotional. Is there anything a customer is going to notice differently? Yeah, you may get ruder service for captive. (laughs) <laughs> it's, not, it's not the other way. It's not. I know it sounds weird, but that company has that responsibility to wear your uniform, which they do, right? And they provide good service, right? Because that's part of their contract. I don't know whether you guys flew recently, but you know the service for the last ten years in passenger service has not been that great. I mean, I'm a big outsourcer, you know, person in, in a lot in a lot of things. And uh, but you know, you know, if you're doing a service partner above the wing, they want to keep your business, so they usually hire good people, pay them half the amount of money, and they're more flexible. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Lance Lipkis. But first, a reminder that this week's show is brought to you by Pratt and Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and APUs. To help the industry achieve net zero air transport carbon emissions by 2050, Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, cleaner fuels, and greener business. Learn more at prattwhitney.com slash sustainability. Welcome back to our conversation with Lance Lipkus. Uh, Lance, as we've been talking about, you've 
spent a fair amount of your career in transformations, restructurings, cost-cutting kinds of operations. What are the first steps when approaching this so that you're not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater? You have to start with data. And this is all about metrics, metrics and service, right? And safety. Not so much relative to outside of the uh, the aviation, but what are the metrics that are key to running the operation? The financial metrics are different. They're used for a different outcome of what you're going to look at. So when you look at a company, you have to do it much more micro analysis as opposed to being, you know, a gross view because it won't give you the right the right answer. So. Um, most companies, you look at metrics, what's your service? Are you a customer grade kind of product? What are your SLAs? I mean, what are you selling? You know, what are you selling? In, in the airline business, you're selling a seat and you're selling safety because you're not going to, you're not selling food anymore, practically pretty much, right? So you want to save travel. You want to get your bag. You don't want to stand online long, right? So you look at those metrics, right? And you don't look at them as as, uh, as a gross metric. You get down and you look at metrics actually by day and by time of day, right? So if you have horrible service and zero service in one hour and 100 in another, you go, oh, well, I'm, I'm 100 over here, but zero over here. Well, you're not, okay? So it, it's different. You also have to look, and we'll leave safety out of this because that's primarily for, for the airlines, but you have to look at the people equation here, right? Because people are the ones that make the service, right? They're not not necessarily loading bags, but they are the front-facing people. And again, I hate to revert back to talk, but this is what we what we had to overcome. You have to look at facilities, right? Do I have too many buildings? What's my footprint? Should I consolidate my footprint? Am I international? Do I have regulatory issues that says I can't close this building, or I have a lease, or whatever those uh, whatever those restrictions are? And then you walk through the different processes that you have, right? And the processes are really timed around how do you optimize certain categories and design and inspect the opportunities that you could improve using Six Sigma or digital transformation or other tools that either help or remove uh, people, right? Because people and technology can work together, but sometimes technology doesn't like people and it can do it all of itself. But it's all about optimizing your people and optimizing your real estate and optimizing your equipment. And you start at the high level and then you get down to a lower level where you can determine, can you make that new model work in a, in a, in a, now I won't call it a restructuring, but a reinventionation of yourself, right? Reinvent yourself differently. Well, Lance, what you just talked about made a lot of sense in terms of how you approach the problem and make sure that you're focusing on the priorities. But so many operational roles in this industry are really driven by people. So how do you keep people motivated and excited when you're cutting costs and re-engineering a process? So I'm going to talk about uh, my role at Continental. So in Continental, I was running their hub in Newark in, uh, in the, the operational side. I spoke to the hub leader. He said, you're the, going to be the 10th person that had this role in 16 months. And I said, what happened to other people? They say they couldn't last here. They said the, the environment was too difficult. And that's not even a, that's not even a business term. Um, but anyway, and, and my first day on the job, I started talking to people, right? I, you know, my, I was not assessing the business. I was not assessing, you know, safety or this. I was talking to the people and talking to the people is talking into, um, into a break shops where there could be 12 people or those that are on the line driving a tractor or loading bags. And I was having one-on-ones with them. I didn't wear a tie. You know, I just, you know, was just wearing my, my yellow jacket and asked them a question. I said, how are you guys doing today? And they kept saying, no one's ever asked us how we're doing. That's problematic. So that starts at the baseline of the supervisors, the managers, the, the uh, assistant directors, up to the, my, myself, right? And I said, this problem is deep-rooted, deep-rooted in the, the culture that was existing at Newark. I, I think it was a little bit different at other, uh, other airports, um, but this was the problem. And... 
when I looked at the people in the baggage room, which, you know, putting bags on airplane is people say, oh, that's easy. They're heavy bags, right? And they were very depressed. And they said, we're, we're working very hard. These bags are heavy. And we have to rush to get them in the carts to get them out. So this is going to be a little bypass here of one of the views that you take on employees. So we had cameras everywhere. And I asked, because uh, we had a guy that just mounted the, the cameras. I said, I want to see three videos for every belt every day of the week. And you'll be surprised what the video said, that there is a line um, where the baggage cart has to be versus where the baggage belt is. The distance between those two was three feet. And they struggled to pick up 50-pound bag from a cart and put it on an upper-level baggage belt. And I went to HR and I said, where's all our workers' compensation coming from? They said, it's all in the bag room. They're twisting the muscles in their back. That's a different approach to solving a problem, right? So the solution was, let's just move the lines back because we had plenty of room. They all got painted. Workers' comp went down to almost zero. Houston headquarters calls me, what did you do? Are you lying? I said, I don't, I don't lie about compensation. It's your people. So that's how you solve problems for people because that's spread throughout the ramp in the 1,700 people. Oh, here's a guy that cares about us and our health, and he's talking to us about the business, what's happening, why do you have three people on a tug, which should only be two, you want to fall off, and then you can't work because of your family. This is how you interact. This is before I even started to change the metrics and the staffing. So is there, you talked about culture, Lance. Is there a is there one perfect definition of what the right culture should be in an organization, or does it depend? Culture is a great word, but it's not applicable in most cases. Culture says you got to be nice to everybody. Well, that's not really helpful, right? I try to figure out if you're selling for culture, what's your outcome? What are you going to measure? Is it the employee survey? Because those typically are not indicative. They're maybe, maybe not, but how do you react to those surveys, right? Because I looked at the surveys. I said, well, this isn't telling me that we're improving our culture. So I'm a little bit nervous when I when I talk about culture, because culture means to me, are your people happy? Are you talking to your employees? Are they happy? That's what I call culture. And and then when they start to be happy about their work, you can go and, and you can tell by people's expressions whether they're happy. If they're happy, you have good culture. If they're not and coming to work is a drudge for them and they call out sick and they're not sick, you know, because you know that happens, right? Um, that's that's where your culture is bad. Everyone always asks that question of everybody. We're going to have the best culture in the world. And there's not a way to get there without a different kind of plan. Well, Lance, this has been amazing and very interesting. You obviously have a great way to think about these kind of problems. You've been in really complex operations. As you think about your career in airlines and your love of airlines, what sort of strikes you as what's made the airline industry such a passion for so many people? Flying has always been a, you know, the first passenger airplanes, everyone's been excited. You know, oh, and then, you know, you, you had all this technology, you get videos, you get TV, you got to eat on the airplane, you could. It was people's ability to go somewhere and get there quickly, right? So the whole aviation is about doing something different. I'm going somewhere. I'm going to visit somebody. So the days of taking trains, you know, I'm going to be a little bit holistic about this, taking trains and, and buses and cars became different right? Now I can get an airplane, you know, I can go to sleep, I can go, you know, 12 hours on a flight. So it, and it's, it's, it's an imaginary, it's an imaginary feeling of freedom. And that's the way I look at it. And, and people say it's exotic. You know, they see people, flight attendants in uniforms and pilots look like they're, you know, like they came out of a, a Greek statue, you know? So there's all this, there's all this hype about it's it's fun, it's exciting, and forget the food and the service. It's it's your ability to create freedom to go wherever you want, when you want. Well, Lance, this has been great. Go ahead and tell a quick taco story for all of us. Okay, 
when when Ben asked me to join, he said, "Well, you know, we're consolidating airlines." He says, "We're going to consolidate Luxa, you know, from Costa Rica, Tucker from El Salvador, Aviateca from Guatemala, Sansa from Honduras, Nika from Nicaragua, and a lot of other smaller carriers." And he said, "You have to make them look like one airline." That was my objective. That's all. That's all you said to me. They got to look like one airline, and. And, and Chris, this is where you, you come into the culture here that we had in the, in the five major airports. You know, you had Nicaraguans, you had Salvadorians, you had, uh, you know, Costa Ricans, Ticas that we call Ticas. And they all thought differently about the world. And they also felt differently about their employees. And what that meant is that they viewed their employees as a tool rather than a person which is really interesting, right? So that's culture, right? Some were more restrictive, uh, more disciplinary. So this was the first challenge. That's step one. I'll, I'll tell you how we saw it. The second one was we had all these facilities everywhere. So if you were in uh, in El Salvador, you had a LOXA desk, you had a NICA desk, you had a, uh, a you know, a, a talk. So all different places, not all in the same place. Plus you had different processes, on how to t- handle an overbooking, excess baggage, they were all different, right? And then they all had different service partners, right? They're ground handling people. Anything that was outsourced was different. The security, the catering, the cargo, everything was different. So there's nothing that's actually similar, except that they all have airplanes. So I let Ben do the scheduling because that's his role. You know, he's a genius at this and painting and, you know, pricing and all that stuff. He said, you got to go fix this. And two weeks there, I brought the leaders in from each country and their secondaries. And I said, we're going to solve for one operating manual. And that went on for two weeks because nobody could agree. No, you're wrong on this. And, you know, at some point you say, why, why are any of these right? Maybe the one is going to be sufficing for everything. So once you've got the buy-in that the processes are right, now you have the employees above the wing, below the wing, whether it's in-source or outsource, using the same process. And the process actually becomes their hook together. So a Taka airplane being handled by somebody in El Salvador going to Costa Rica with a Costa Rican agent, they are now talking the same language back and forth. So now they're getting connected. The process draw them connected. And they found out, hey, these guys aren't that bad. They actually do some things really well and vice versa, right? So it spreads really quickly. It doesn't take a year to get that culture. So you have to solve for how do you get a single view of who's operating your airplane? Plus, it gives you leverage because now you're going to one service partner below the wing, more volume, more rates. And now you got you got a whole mount of ground equipment that's available for you that you didn't have before. And then, you know, you got the, you know, the union, non-unions, you know, it existed all across the, the enterprise. So you work on that. And then before you knew it, and very rarely do you get to see this, there was one day where LOXA in Costa Rica was the old airline. And the next day it was a hub overnight. All the airplanes just came in and I was standing on the ramp and I said, wow, there's not an airplane on this ramp right now. And 30 minutes later, there's like 12, 15 airplanes all on gates, taking up every gate in Costa Rica. So it was a phenomenal experience to see going from no hub to these hubs that that Ben created. So um, it was just a fascinating journey on how to bring multiple carriers together to look like one. And they all got pretty much all got painted. Lance, this has been great. We really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Lance. Good to talk to you. We'll be back with more Airlines Confidential in a minute. The Airlines Confidential podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Lance took our questions. Now we're going to take some of yours. Please email us your questions at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say play the Airlines Confidential podcast. 
Ben, first up in the conga question line is Daniel from Bloomington, Indiana. We probably could have used Andrew Nacella's help on this one, but I think you're going to do just fine as well. Greetings, Ben and Chris. I'm curious on your take on how U.S. airlines will maintain or build out new routes in Asia if we assume that the U.S. and Russia will mutually ban one another's aircrafts for the foreseeable future. For example, when I lived in Singapore several years ago, United and Delta still operated Fifth Freedom Rights via Hong Kong and Tokyo, and United retains a meaningful short-haul fleet based in Guam. Is there any scenario where you could imagine that big U.S. carriers operating more intra-Asia flights to continue service to destinations like India or Southeast Asia, or is it more likely they will just cancel long-haul service to some of these cities for the foreseeable future? Daniel, this is a great question, and it's an evolving question, of course, because we don't know what's going to happen with Russian airspace and how long this situation is going to last. But going with this, and right now, we've already seen some airlines cancel flights because of the inability to fly over Russia right now. I think the idea of Fifth Freedom Authority that you talked about might be a solution for some airlines. That authority is not widely held. It's not like any airline can just establish that. So it is possible, you know, that maybe out of Germany, an airline could, a U.S. airline could fly from Germany into Asia by flying U.S. to Germany into Asia or something. But they would have to have that authority. I can't imagine new authority is going to be developed today to take up for this. For a Fifth Freedom Authority, obviously, a country is allowing another country's airline to pick up local passengers and carry them to another destination from that country. So it's not clear that it's always in every country's interest to allow this fifth freedom kind of authority. There are dormant fifth freedom authorities not being used, like you say, and maybe some of those might help in the interim. I think, however, that for U.S. carriers, the ability to serve Asia and not serve and not cross Russian airspace is going to be different based on which coast you're flying from and what kind of routings you have. Some flights will just have to be canceled. Some will go a different way and maybe take longer, burn more fuel, burn more crew time. And whether or not the flight is still economic with those changes, whether the ticket price changes that would have to happen as a result of that um, would allow them to fill the plane or not, that's all just so uncertain right now. So I think right now what you're going to see is flights canceled. United used good wording. They talked about suspending their service from Newark to India. That word suspending suggests that they plan to bring it back at some point, right? And so I think you'll see airlines doing that in the short term, watching what's going on in the real world and deciding, is this a 30-day issue or is it a multi-year issue? And if it's the former, they'll just suspend for a little while and stop flying some things. If they think it's going to be multiple years and we're essentially going to get into a new Cold War with Russia or something like that, where that airspace will be closed for the long term, then other issues, maybe Fifth Freedom Authorities, but I'm not all that excited about that just because there aren't that many, but maybe other routings or maybe even other gateways developed as a result to make that happen. It's one of many bad consequences of this war. And Ben, we've got another question about scheduling. This one's from Steve in Los Angeles. Hey, Ben and Chris, I love listening to your industry knowledge and wondered if you could shed light on why there are so many hub-to-hub flights, some on wide bodies. I can't imagine there's enough O&D traffic between two hubs to justify this many hub-to-hub flights, like eight Atlanta to Salt Lake City flights on Delta, or nine Houston to Denver flights on United, or nine Phoenix to DFW flights on American. Is there enough O&D on one end to connect flights to the other end, or do passengers double connect through both hubs, which seems inconvenient? Thanks for all you do. Thanks, Steve. This is a great question, too. You're right. There are lots of hub-to-hub flights, and hub-to-hub flights 
are the easiest thing for an airline scheduler to put in the schedule for a couple of reasons. One is most airlines do maintenance in their hubs. And so by flying hub to hub, they're at a maintenance station at each end. So as you route individual airplanes, it's a good way to get your plane into a maintenance station. Another thing is you do get connections at both ends, like you, like you said. It's not necessarily that an individual customer would double connect at both ends, but if you look at the Houston-Denver, for example, on United, it's very realistic that they can fill the Houston-Denver plane with some people connecting through Houston at one end, coming in from Mexico, Central America, other places. Those people get off in Denver, but then other people get on in Houston, go to Denver, and connect on to other places further west they fly. So it's not necessarily that one person is double connecting, but they do generate connections at both ends. And the reason you're seeing wide bodies on some of these now is not because that's where airlines want to use them, but it's simply because that wide body can't be profitably deployed transatlantically or transit specifically right now. So the best place to put it is in a route between two hubs. The last thing I'll say, Steve, is when you're connecting between two hubs, there's a lot of airlines business travel that goes on. So it's a great conduit for employees to travel and for workers at, at the airline to get from one important facility to another. So for all those reasons, you're going to see lots of flights hub to hub. And Ben, how much of that might be defensive in nature with regard to like signaling to other airlines, stay out of the hub to hub markets? You know, some of it might. It's expensive to put out capacity that's purely defensive. And so I think what they do is they really bulk up on the hub to hub for the reasons I said, because it makes sense and that naturally creates a defense. Now, it also means that when they're looking for capacity and looking to trim, they may not want to pull from the hub to hub for the exact reason that you say. Okay. And then one more question, Ben, and this is uh, goes into the finer wine column. I'm going to let you arbitrate this one. I don't want to prejudice anything, so I'm just going to read the complaint from Alex in Tampa without giving any uh, preface here. Hey, Ben and Chris, I wanted to get your take on a finer wine from my two recent trips on Ryanair. I flew them with a friend and read on their website, you can purchase an extra seat to have more space. I booked three seats as their website instructed on the same PNR. I did not purchase specific seats, but instead figured out we could get free seats 24 hours prior. When checking in, there were at least 10 full rows of three seats available, yet Ryanair split our party into three random seats. This rendered the extra seat useless and forced me to then purchase seats anyway. I appreciate Ryanair's model and realize I was at the mercy of what was available, but unlike Frontier Spirit Allegiant, who actively tried to put groups together, Ryanair intentionally split us up when there was no need to. Is my gripe valid here? Well, this is a real interesting one, Alex. I'm going to say this is more of a wine than a fine. The reason it's more of a wine is you admit yourself. You bought tickets to fly, but you didn't buy seat assignments. So you were accepting that you'll let the airline pick where you sit. So in that, I've got to say this is a wine. Now, you compare this to what some of the U.S. low-cost carriers do, and certainly you're right, Spirit, Frontier, and Allegiant, if you don't have paid seat assignments, the gate agent or the ticket agent will try to put you together if they can. They can't always do that. But if they can, they will. And I guess Ryanair has just said, I don't want my agents taking that time. Just let the computer spit out three seats. I don't blame Ryanair for that. And I don't blame Spirit Frontier and Legion for trying to put people together either. But I think this is a wine because I think expecting Ryanair to do what other airlines would do and then being disappointed that they didn't, you should have been a little smarter than that, I think. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, 
I, I get your point, and I can understand Alex's frustration. I, I guess what happens is buying three seats on Ryanair to get this extra seat basically gives you the privilege to spend more by then purchasing three seat assignments. So it's really a two-step transaction that probably isn't as clear. And Alex just kind of made, made some assumptions, like you said. So ultimately, it's a wine, but um, I would be interested in exactly how this was marketed and how it's explained. You know, that's a good point. And I wonder, would it have been cheaper for you, Alex, to have just bought two seats and bought the seat assignments for each seat versus buying the third seat? I'm not sure sort of whether that went into the decision process or not. All fair. So, um, Alex, thanks for writing in. So another airline's confidential is almost in the can. But first, our shout outs for the week. Mine goes to Wizz Air. Within days of Russia's war on Ukraine that has triggered a flood of refugees, Wizz Air committed to providing free flights for 100,000 Ukrainian refugees who had arrived to Poland, Slovakia, Hungary, and Romania. So hats off to Wizz Air. I'm sure other airlines are going to be stepping up as well. Great job by Wiz. I agree. My shout out goes to aircraft lessors who have planes in Russia. <laughs> the reason I'm giving them the shout out is like Sabre and like other companies who were able to say, or Delta canceling their code share with Aeroflot, they could make those decisions and say, I'm not going to do business with Russia right now. But if you're a lessor and you have a plane leased to a Russian commercial or freight airline and they're paying their bills, I'm not sure what right you have to go repossess your plane. And I'm not sure how successful you would be if you tried to. So my shout out goes to those lessors who have planes essentially stuck in Russia and are probably trying to figure out what do we do about this. Yeah, it could be a long time before they see those planes. That's right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Hope you have a good week, and we'll see you back here next week. Have a great week, everyone, and we'll see you next week at Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.